Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and this week's dispatches on everything from accordion politics to synthetic faces. Lithuanian virtuoso Martinus Levitskitz will be playing some of the former in a moment, and later on Jennifer Walsh is here for the men and women who never were in the Russian information war. In between, we'll hear a swimming song and the curators of Metabolic Time, a new show at Project in Dublin, explain how curation could be a bit more like fermentation. But we begin with the little organ that is the accordion, and one of the world's most eclectic players, Martinus Levitskis, the man who brought both Vivaldi and Lady Gaga to the instrument. Levitskis was in Dublin this week for a concert at St Andrew's Church in Westland Row, celebrating Lithuanian national independence, a celebration which this year took on a particular poignance, more of which later. But I began by asking Martinus Levitskis about his chosen instrument's place in the epic spaces of a church. Being in a church, it makes one think instantly, oh, it is a little organ, of course, that, that, that music works here. I like that assumption because uh, essentially accordion is like a portable organ and... Um, no offense to organ players and organ music in general, but it has more expression dynamically and uh, I think has, in many ways, uh, more character. But recently I played in a duet with organ uh, in Germany with the famous organist Iveta Apkalna, and I think uh, the combination also works really well. So, yeah, it is a little organ, but uh, it can be a little um, wicked. <laughs> when uh, people after leaving my concert have these sort of comments about softness and sensitivity because usually um, people think of accordion as a very loud instrument and um, it's not that I want to say no it's not loud no it can be um, uh, super loud and it can play uh, very strong accents that make this impression of, uh, of a loud instrument. And usually if people uh, know something about accordion is uh, because they hear this instrument on the street and often is the case that uh, the sound culture is not <laughs> very best. So my mission as a musician, um, especially after studying in London Royal Academy of Music, uh, is taking care of the sound and sound culture. So in every concert I try to present a variety of genres as well as different characters of sound. It, it was a beautiful program you played. One of the things that uh, struck me was you opened with a piece, a Philip Glass piece, and then later on you played a Lithuanian folk song, I think the second last one. And they, there seemed to be this kind of kinship between the two of them that I found really surprising. Yes, and to be honest, when I started arranging uh, Lithuanian folk songs, uh, quite a lot of people told me that it sounds a bit like Glass or, I don't know, um, Max Richter or sometimes Steve Reich. So I guess there is some kind of um, connection or, or <laughs> simply influence. 
in my ears uh, when I um, take a simple melody of Lithuanian folk and uh, arrange it with different arpeggi and harmonize it. So yeah, the danger is there. <laughs> The song is called uh, The Green Roof, so it's a plant um, with very small yellow blossoms. And it's a sort of national plant of Lithuania and it represents virginity uh, in general. But the song isn't exactly about that. So yeah, the, the tune is very circly, uh, but uh, the arrangement I made is kind of a variation of the tune and exploiting the different uh, types of arpeggi going on top of the tune. Yeah, so that's why I guess it might sound quite similar to Philip Glass. extraordinary actually um, with the people gathered there. I mean it was seemed to be there was a lot of Lithuanians in the crowd but also Ukrainians and a lot of discussion of, of what was happening uh, in that part of the world. I mean were you kind of aware that there was a particular kind of uh, mood in the audience? I struggled to find the word what was the mood but I guess I wouldn't be too wrong saying it was melancholic and kind of uh, maybe also a little hopeful but rather reflecting the here and now. The Lithuanian ambassador, Marius Gudinas, here in Dublin, asked me if I have anything in my repertoire that is Ukrainian. And so I, I contacted my friend in Ukraine, who is also an accordion player, and uh, asked him if there is a song that maybe I could use and make a very short arrangement. So he gave me that song, which is called The River Dnieper is Roaring and Moaning. That moaning and weeping, maybe specifically, because uh, we all see on TV what's happening there, and we can only imagine what does it mean to lose home, uh, leave, flee the country, or completely the other way, uh, go and fight it, fight the aggressor. So horrific things going on there, and uh, I wanted to somehow represent that in my uh, very uh, impromptu arrangement. How are you feeling about cultural boycotts in general? Do you think they're useful, and, and you know, how, how, how do you want to get involved in, in this, I suppose? Uh, maybe I'm not the most uh, suitable person to, to, to be asked <laughs> this question because sure? <laughs> I uh, will be biased and uh, I guess I will be quite clear that I think in the current situation everything that is Russian should be banned 
um, and I feel sorry for the people that uh, are musicians or in different spheres of art, culture, that are Russians. They, I guess, did not deserve to suffer that. But knowing that people who have very different professions uh, in Ukraine, because it's all of the people in Ukraine that suffer war because of the aggressor, which is Putin's Russia, uh, in that case, I'm quite cruel, and I say that uh, for the given moment, uh, the bans are completely appropriate. Martina Slavitskis there, and his latest album with the Lithuanian National Symphony Orchestra features Piazzolla's Aconcagua. To propose time ordered otherwise, that's the mission of a new programme at Project in Dublin, co-curated by Sarah Grayview and Cairo Clark. Inside the Project Gallery is a group show, seeded by a video from Clark, which explores time and collecting, and what we might put in a decolonialised museum, through the work of contemporary artists in everything from clay to cloth, pixels to 4,000-year-old bog pine. Culture File spoke to Sarah Grayview in Derry and Cairo Clark in Naples about metabolic time. Cyprea tigris, English tiger or panther cowrie. There are 49 of these Indo-Pacific cowries, 48 from Pompeii and one from Herculaneum. I've been following quite closely the discussions and debates around the decolonization of museums. And I think that that's a, it's a discussion that's very advanced in some ways, but I think... What was missing was the question of what, what else do we put in place or how can we think about collecting, think about displaying things, think about telling like a narrative of our um, civic selves in a different kind of a way. And I think that's what Cairo's work maybe had some avenues for that that were very interesting to me. By the 15th century, shell money existed as a popular form of legal tender across West Africa. Europeans exploited this tender in order to support their slave trade. Developing this video essay has been a really interesting kind of way to rethink uh, my relationship to language. And I guess, yeah, it does become a a kind of self-portrait or I think it was more entangled with my self than I thought it was. I guess its its antecedents are maybe you suck at Photoshop, I was thinking. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the form for people who, who can't see it at the moment. All of my work always kind of begins in an analogue way, so on paper, writing things down, research, collecting things and looking through books. And so I kind of gathered all of these different materials um, and also I was uh, engaging with research from Pompeii and that was during lockdown and I wasn't able to visit, so a lot of that was through exchange uh, Exchange with the curators and the collectors there and they were kind of sending me images and and google drive folders of different different artifacts and so everything became quite digital even though the realm of what I was thinking about was quite uh, tangible in different in different ways and so I collected all this research that was on my desktop um, and for me it was this idea of how can I use this space to kind of layer all of these different strands um, and kind of use the desktop space and use the 
what feels quite chaotic um, if you keep your desktop quite tidy um, <laughs> is all of these open tabs and moving images. And the idea was to just demonstrate that that uh, those relationships, those rhizomatic kind of threads. It is quite different from the other works in the show. It is the one that relies totally on the digital domain and, and on text. I mean, I guess Cairo's work was the kind of seed for the exhibition. It was the kind of, it's a little bit of a center point um, that the other works connect to. Although, I mean, in making the exhibition, your hope is always that the works, once they're in the space, they begin to speak to one another. And I think in this case, they really do. But somehow, the thematics that run through Cairo's work, and it is something that's full of like layers and poetic connections between ideas. But I think that it forms a core around which the exhibition is built. All the other works in the exhibition are sculptural works. Despite the lead-off that you get from Cairo's piece, handcrafting does come into it a lot. I'm thinking of Gareth Kennedy's work, uh, The Table. Tell us about The Table. So The Table is part of a much larger work that Gareth has been doing over a number of years in Eris in County Mayo. Um, with a community there. It's the community that is around the kind of Rossport or the like um, the pipeline conflict that happened in Mayo. But he was working with two groups of people. He was working with a, a like a, a council of community elders and with a group of school children. And they were retrieving or digging up pine wood, bog pine, making artifacts with that, and then those artifacts were reburied in the bog. This is all sort of documented at the exhibition, but there are objects that will get buried, and in 25 years' time, should we all be around, which is looking less likely than maybe when the show started, then we would re-examine these objects and their, and their place in the world. Exactly, but there was a kind of a concern that if they were found in another way, if they were found by somebody else by accident, that there would be some confusion about what these objects were, like whether they that they would maybe throw off. Because if you carbon date the objects, they're 4,300 years old, but they have been made just within the last couple of years. So one of the works within the exhibition is a letter to the keeper of the National Museum to speak about these objects and to, I suppose, imagine this future find, like imagine if these objects were found and to sort of catalog them in a way or to say what they are. And we, I guess we really like this idea of like slipping through time, like imagining a, a possible future that's connected to a, an unknowable past. There's kind of this concern that it can become um, an object of which, I guess, the things that we're talking about in the exhibition, these alternative ways of collecting and preserving, it could kind of... There's a really interesting navigation of how do you still keep these objects used and part of your everyday and not kind of a hierarchical um, protection of them being like now an art object. I smell turmeric, mustard seeds popping, onions frying, garlic and ginger melting. Everything starts with garlic, ginger and onion. We were talking a lot about different types of time and thinking about time as it's, as it's understood in a museological sense or by museums is often very linear. It's about like a time that can be told in a, a linear narrative of history somehow, and you place things within that in like a orderly way. And I guess we were thinking about different types of 
different types of time that are about relationships between people, that are about how we live together and eat together, work together, and how those those types of time are somehow more cyclical and less linear. Somehow they loop around each other or circle around. And we were thinking about this idea of how a museum thinks about like fixing time that you put something in a glass case and you hold it and keep it sterile and keep it safe in that way. But there are other ways of preserving as well, like um, pickling or fermenting things, preserving them in a way that has like a different relationship to sterility or to like that idea of time, of how time works. I was talking there about metabolic time at Project Arts in Dublin with co-curators Sarah Graveview and Cairo Clark. The show runs until April 9th and on the 7th of April, Sinead Mercier and Donal O'Kelly present How to Be a Good Ancestor. Next, that swimming song, along with some piano articulating the inarticulable. That's what the poet Jessica Brown heard when her writing featured at the heart of a new song cycle from composer Elish Nirian. Watershed for Voice and Piano was inspired by a poetry reading in Limerick City, attended by the work's commissioner, pianist Yonit Kosovsky, who also enlisted the voice of contralto Julie Comparini to complete the team. The collaborators worked remotely during the pandemic, communicating from their respective homes in Ireland, England and Germany, letting the poetry grow into music and then an album and a series of live performances. For Culture File, Rachel Andrews spoke to Elish Nirian and Jessica Brown about the powers of collaboration. Above the reservoir, recline the you're looking at what can I bring to this? What uh, does this need, if anything? My name is Elish Nirian and I'm a composer. Visions of the shell bellowing as the I was originally sent the full collection of Jessica's work and I initially I thought which of these makes sense to pull out and put together for a separate piece of work, which is what this song cycle is. So it's a collection of songs, poetry, music that needs to have a rationale all of its own. There needs to be some journey in a song cycle. It's a lovely, intimate type of art form, simply a singer with a piano. And for me, it's a very pared down way of working. It's more than I expected it to be. I guess in some respects it, it exists in different forms uh, as a concept album, because the album includes the song cycle, but also uh, Jessica reading the poetry, which this is based on, and also sound recordings taken from the locale, which inspire the writing of the, the text, but also I think the genesis of the project. It is a collection of songs I think quite intimate reflections on womanhood, um, parenthood, environment, locale, nature. I had already gone for my ocean swim that day. 
But as my son and myself edged along the low, far tide, I could not resist. I went, I went back, back in. in to the waves. Briny water seeped, elixir from Nexus region, and then this silvering of everything. My name is Jessica Brown, and I'm a writer and a creative writing teacher. I was so excited with the idea of this. Yonit came to the book launch of And Say. Then I got a fantastic email from her saying, would you be interested in um, letting me use this text to commission for a, a song cycle? I think I might have thought it would be an extension or, or a totally separate entity, but actually it's become almost in dialogue with everything that it's working with. The environment, the poetry, ourselves. It's just become this totally thing in and of itself that's totally integrated into everything that it's a part of. There was something really special when I opened up the email from Elish saying the five poems that she curated from the book. I remember almost getting tingles because I'm a novelist too but I wouldn't have approached my poetry collection with narrative in mind but when I saw the five poems that Elise chose I thought oh my goodness I think I think Elise found the narrative structure in the in the book in these what my mind was disparate poems it was late evening and then as well for someone who's not really musical when I listen to the music you know, Julie's voice is the first line I follow because that's the words. That's kind of where I first land. But then I listen to what the piano is doing. The sense or experience that I get is that the piano is doing all this stuff in the heart or the soul or the bowels that couldn't find words. It was startlingly incredible to me to hear those two elements articulate the words, and then articulate the inarticulable. I went back in. I went back in. To the waves. We did have a couple of really lovely Zoom sessions where I got to kind of tell the story behind some of the poems or give some insight into some of my word choices. And there was one uh, lovely session where I got to show a map of the area and say, here I was in Mount Shannon, you know, walking in that forest when that poem came. Or there I was in that Kinkora Harbor, you know, which is a very prosaic, even kind of corporate setting. Yet all these poems happened. It's kind of special to show to show kind of off-site what had been going on. When, of course, Jessica got to hear the music, uh, there's a great intrepidation on my part at that point because you really do want the writer to feel um, that uh, although what they may witness is might be different to what they had in their mind, that it does open up new vistas of exploration around poetry, narrative, intent, and how far our work can be reinterpreted and how far it can reach beyond us, which is a a subject which fascinates me. 
because beyond us, what does the viewer and the listener and the experiencer really pick up from what we've created after all of this talk, back and forth and collaboration? What is it ultimately that lands on the lap of the witnesser? Jessica Brown and Elish Nirian there talking to Rachel Andrews. And you heard also from Yonit Kosofsky Piano and Julie Comperini Contralto. Watershed the album is available on Bandcamp. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, how you helped the Russian disinformation campaign in Ukraine, possibly. Our columnist Jennifer Walsh has been looking at some of the faces involved in the information war over Ukraine and finding them familiar yet uncanny in this, her latest, Things No Things. The first image I look at is of a man in his 40s. Something about his face says German dentist to me. I don't know why, but I imagine him driving his Audi home somewhere outside Stuttgart. The second image is of a woman, also most likely in her 40s. She looks very well, makeup and hair on point. I am thinking she manages a bank, but more than anything, likes yoga retreats in Bali. Why do I assume these things about these people I've never met? Because I'm a human, which means I'm designed to run pattern recognition on anything I see, but my guesses are beside the point. Because neither of these people are real. They're fake humans. The images were created using AI and used by the Russian government in misinformation campaigns on social media during the current appalling war in Ukraine. The images of these fake humans were almost certainly generated using a neural network called StyleGAN, code which was developed by researchers at the tech giant NVIDIA. In order to make an AI which can produce pictures of fake humans, you need a whole lot of pictures of real humans for the network to train on. So the NVIDIA researchers scraped over 70,000 photos off Flickr, the photo-sharing website, to create their training database. 70,000 photos of people of all ages, ethnicities and genders, all of which had been uploaded to Flickr under Creative Commons licences, were fed into StyleGAN to teach it how to make convincing photos of humans which didn't exist. StyleGAN's early efforts were easy to catch. It created images of people with two sets of teeth, an extra ear or earrings growing out of the side of their head. But in the last few years, StyleGAN has gotten very, very good. A couple of weeks ago, researchers from Lancaster University in Berkeley published the results of a study which demonstrated that not only did humans find it difficult to distinguish between pictures of real and fake humans, they also tended to rate pictures of fake humans as appearing to be more quote-unquote trustworthy than those of real humans. The French philosopher Paul Virilio wrote that when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. 
the invention of photo-sharing websites, of AI to create fake humans, is also the invention of deep fakes, revenge porn and ever-increasingly sophisticated methods of propaganda. And I think of those 70,000 people out there who posted their pictures to Flickr only to become unknowing participants in the Russian misinformation war. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more unmasked synths at the same time next week. Till then, bye now.